0: Everybody, we are in a really special place right now. We are uh, overlooking, as you can see right behind me, the city of Jerusalem. You've got right behind me that little gold dome, is the Dome of the Rock, uh, and it's right in the middle of the city of Jerusalem. Many stories here. I just want to pick one out for us today. As you're looking down on the city, you're actually with us uh, the rest of the trip here, Uh, In Israel, you're in a spot called the Mount of Olives, uh, which shows up in a couple places in the Bible. And I want you to turn there, uh, all of you here with me and those of you at home in Santa Barbara, turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 21. And we're just going to read this, little pieces at a time, get through the story. um, And allow this to just sink into your hearts and minds. the scene that unfolds before and after the gates of Jerusalem that ends in a crucifixion and a resurrection and changes the world. This is Matthew chapter 21. We're going to read uh, the first eleven verses. Uh, well, we'll be in the first eleven verses, but we'll just start with the first three. And do me another favor, uh, when, you're, when you get to Matthew 21, Put your thumb there and turn also to Zechariah. Zechariah, and I'll tell you where to go once we need to get there. But keep your thumb in Zechariah and we'll start reading in Matthew. And I'm going to start reading. The scene I think most of us are at least somewhat familiar with. But let's just read it as we look on the scene, standing where this started. Looking at the scene where it ends. And this is the word of the Lord out of Matthew 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, uh, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and He will send them at once. This is God's Word. Let's stop right there. A couple things about the passage we just read. Jesus right, tells His disciples, tells a couple of them to go into the city before Him where they'll find a donkey set up. He's there to take the donkey with them for the Messiah, for Jesus. If anyone questions Him, if anyone questions the disciples, they're to say the Lord has need of it and it'll all be okay. The other Gospels actually record this happening. It goes down just as Jesus said. A couple ways of viewing this little story. One, it could be that Jesus is that popular. There's already an anticipation in the air. An excitement brewing, both where he started and a little bit before where he's about to come. There's a little bit of excitement brewing for this, this rabbi called Jesus. It could be, and some people would say, that there's such an excitement steering up for Jesus that anything that he wants, it's kind of like when you walk into a hotel and you're a, a, an esteemed guest, anything you want you can have. That's one interpretation. I like the second interpretation better. I think that Jesus is pulling just a Jedi mind trick right here. You know what I'm saying? He's saying, if anyone, I need a donkey and there's one there. I can see it with my eyes. If anyone questions my need of it, just tell them, you know, uh, just tell them that the Lord has need of it and they will give it to you, right? The reason I think this is some kind of a Jedi mind trick is because of the line that comes directly after it. Verse four, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a be- uh, a foal of a beast of burden. This was supposed to happen. This is a prophetic word that is supposed to be fulfilled. Jesus knows it's supposed to happen, and God causes all of this history to start to work itself out in order for him to get there. This is just one of the steps. So I think Jesus just knew this was supposed to happen and just kind of waved his finger. Hey, if anyone questions it, just tell him the Lord has need of it and it'll just wind up in your hands. And it happens exactly in this way. Here's what happens after that. They bring the donkey to where Jesus is. They bring the animal to where Jesus is. They saddle him up and they put on, uh, as, as they're beginning to lead him into the city, People start to lay down their jackets, their cloaks. Other people start to, uh, as the verses go on. Let's just read verse eight and verse seven and eight. They brought the donkey and colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Okay. So as we were coming along the street to get to where we are. There were actually some people, uh, uh, some vendors, handing us little branches, right? Did any of you see that? This is some, a similar type of thing. We're not talking about giant palm branches. We're just talking about little branches, twigs. They're laying them down in the street. Others are laying down their coats uh, to pave the way for Jesus to come. Now... Because of this, because of where they are, the triumphal entry is kind of a misleading term. I'm still going to use that for the rest of my life, but just so you and I know, it's a little bit misleading, and here's why. He doesn't actually enter Jerusalem. There's no entry yet until the end in verse 10, right? When he says in verse 10, and then he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. This whole time he doesn't actually enter into Jerusalem yet. This far, all that's happening is actually outside the city, where we are. Outside the city with Jesus' uh, followers. It's with His entourage. They're getting excited. It's the Galilean companions that He's been kind of accumulating all this way. Have you ever heard this, uh, have you ever heard this said uh, when you've read this story or someone said something of this nature about the fickle nature of the people, right? At first they were laying down palm branches, they were uh, uh, shouting Hosanna, they were bringing Him in and yet uh, uh, you know, some few days later they're the very ones crucifying Jesus. And some people will look at this story and say the people were so fickle. One, one morning they're, they're lauding the Son of God and the next they're shouting for His crucifixion. Now this is not Jerusalem yet. This is a different set of people. These are the disciples that Jesus has been accumulating along the way. They've seen His miracles. They've heard His teachings. They're excited over Him and they're now walking with Him into the city. This is not the same crowd who in chapter 27 verse 15 through 25 will be shouting different things. Crucify Him! Crucify Him! It's only when we get to verse 10 that the Galileans with Jesus, his little entourage, clash with a different set of people in Jerusalem and we start to see a conflict of what people think about Jesus. Right now, we're being introduced to a very exuberant Galilean crowd paving the way for Jesus. Now, I want to ask you this. What are they excited about? What are the people following Jesus into the city excited about? Why are they making such a scene? Why are, they, uh, why are they throwing fit, if I can use that word? Taking off their jackets, laying them down, palm fronds. The text tells us that they're taking off their cloaks and laying them down uh, in, front of the, in front of the donkey as Jesus makes His way into Jerusalem. In 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, I just want to read this to you. We actually have this very same thing happening with a person by the name of Jehu. Second Kings chapter 9, verse 13. And I'm just going to read this to you right now. You don't have to turn there. It says that in haste every man of them took his garment or his cloak and put it under him on the bare steps and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king, right? Why would you take off your jackets and place it before a moving animal with someone on them? You are coronating a king. It is a red carpet ceremony. What else are they doing here? Uh, the palm branches or the little branches that they're laying down. Uh, this type of thing, you know, this is not the same as the, uh, the biblical feasts where they would lay down, uh, they would use palm branches to kind of build the booths and celebrate. This is an entirely different thing. A more similar event actually happens years and years earlier when Simon Maccabeus st- uh, strode into the city of Jerusalem as a conqueror didn't last long, but what did they do? They laid, down, uh, they laid down these little palm fronds, these little branches in front of him. What were they doing? They were signaling the coming of a conquering king. And so this is a red carpet ceremony. They are coronating and signaling a new reign. A king, not just any king, but a king who would deliver them. From what? From the power of their oppressors. Not only are they doing that, but they are... And we could just read verse 9. The crowds that went before Him, right? This is His entourage. And those that followed Him were shouting all this time, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They're now quoting uh, uh, from the group of Hillel songs, the praise song, uh, psalms. In fact, they're quoting one of the longest and the last one. It's this, it's this climactic part of these Hillel songs, coronating these kings and ushering him in. Uh, just, as a, uh, just as the Old Testament prophets of Psalms would declare, uh, open wide ye ancient gates and make uh, let the king of glory come in. This is what they're doing, Psalm 118. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is uh, uh, to the Son of David. What does Hosanna mean? It's a plea. It's a cry. It's actually a uh, more of a, a word of praise than it is a prayer. What are they praising? Save us, Lord. It's not just a prayer. It's a note of anticipation of a King who would come to save. They're not asking. They are expecting. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest! Come and save, Lord! And they're calling Him what? A good rabbi? A good teacher? Son of David. We all know by this point, having been through these teachings, I hope, uh, at our church, that the Son of David is a messianic title. The, the Bible, the Torah, the Old Testament, what we would call it, has been promising all throughout, from Genesis to the Prophets, to the Minor Prophets, that there would come a greater king in the line of King David, one who is better than David, and he would deliver and redeem his people. They're looking at this Jewish rabbi, coming in on a donkey, who is fulfilling prophecies, ancient prophecies. They're laying down cloaks, Coronating him as king, shouting at the top of their lungs with palm fronds, You are the one that God has promised. You are the one who is going to deliver your people from the oppressor's hand. Amen. Amen. They are praising and preparing for the messianic king. And they're specifically praying for the overthrow of Rome. Someone who would come in, take care of their enemies and usher in peace. Instead, the road that this king takes leads directly to his death. They're laying down the palm fronds. They're rolling out the proverbial red carpet. They're expecting a new empire, a new regime, a new kingdom from a man who would destroy their enemies. Instead, he gets destroyed before their very eyes. He starts here, he ends over there at a bloody cross. That type of Roman execution meant only to humiliate the worst criminals, traitors. That's how their mighty king meets his end. You might uh, might have guessed or expected that this leads or this would lead. We're not there yet. But it would lead to tremendous confusion. What happened? What happened to the kingdom? What happened to the rule and reign of our God? What happened to justice and mercy and righteousness reigning? What happened to the prophetic promises that God's glory would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea? And on and on and on. Confusion. The disciples are scattered, but that is neither here nor there. Instead, we're here at the beginning of a scene with a triumphal entry. But I want us to think about this death. They think this scene, this road that he's going to take, is going to lead to a kingdom of their own making. Instead, it leads to their death. Why? Because in the Old Testament, don't we get both? We get scenes of a kingdom and a mighty, redeeming Messiah. Why is there confusion? Why does he go the route that he does? I'll tell you why in a nutshell. It's because this is not his only appearance that he's going to be making on the Mount of Olives. This is not the only time Jesus will be visiting this place here on the Mount of Olives. This is just the first time. There are two times. There's actually more than two times. There's a couple other times. But there is one final and last time that he will come and visit this place that we are right now. You remember Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2? Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2. It's that prophecy that Jesus blowing the minds of everyone in the synagogue. Uh, When he first started his ministry, he rolled into a synagogue, took out a scroll, began reciting it, as was the custom in that day. And after reciting it, as the room was still waiting for this rabbi to kind of interpret it, he goes on to say, right now the the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing and it blew everyone's mind. Like, who's this guy think he is? Do you remember what he said? He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And right there he closes the scroll and makes his pronouncement. If you were to look at the actual scroll of Isaiah, you would see that where he closes the scroll ends with a comma. He doesn't finish it as he was supposed to. You know what the next line is? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God. He leaves that line out. He talks about the gospel of peace coming before that, proclaiming liberty, setting captives free, speaking about the good news. He leaves out the justice part and the vengeance and the wrath of God. Why? Why? Do you know that part is still coming? That one day every single human being will have to stand before the throne of God and be judged for how they live their lives? Why does he leave that part out? Every Jewish person in the synagogue would have understood that he left that out and they would, perhaps they would, have, they would have been confused because that is a huge part of their narrative. Isn't it a huge part of our narrative? Don't we long for some type of justice why would He leave that out? Because the first time He came, He did not come to overthrow the kingdom. He came to proclaim liberty. He came to preach the gospel of the kingdom. He came to announce good news. Frederick Buechner, the poetic writer, once said that the gospel is only good news when you start with a bad news first. Mercy is only beautiful when you understand wrath and judgment. That's why Jesus would come in riding on a donkey. Maccabeus, the emperors, Caesar Augustus, Alexander the Great, the Magnificent, all of those guys in their fancy pants that strode into Jerusalem, and still roll into their careers and into their cities and into their lives today. We don't ride on donkeys when we're conquering something. The ancient conquerors of yesteryear never rode in on a donkey when they were coming in for war. They rode in on a horse. A horse was a symbol of war. It meant I'm coming for everything that's mine. A donkey was a symbol of peace. And while the people were expecting a king to come to slaughter their enemies and take over Jerusalem, Jesus fulfills Zechariah. Chapter 9, riding in on a symbol of peace. What was He doing? He was declaring, I have come as a gentle suffering servant to tell you good news of what you need to know before I come again. It was a king unlike any other king before Him, who came not to slaughter His enemies, but to die for them. And He's the same king who would come to die for His enemies today. He's the same king who dies for you and I. But the prophecies tell us, also in Zechariah, chapter 14, that He will come a second time, and He will not be riding on a donkey the second time. And He will not be coming to preach a gospel of peace the second time. And He will not be coming to issue second chances the second time. We have to understand this. Our God is not just a Savior. He is a King and He longs for justice in the land. He hates evil. He hates sin. And He wants righteousness. He came the first time to speak of mercy. He is coming the second time to spread justice. Do you believe that? You might have a hard time with this might have a hard time with justice. You might be saying, I have a hard time with that because I want mercy. Who doesn't want mercy? I want a second chance and I don't want to think about a God of wrath. I don't want to think of a God who's going to judge. I much prefer the God who's more loving and who's more caring and who's more merciful. Our bleeding hearts burn for that. Maybe because we have friends who are not saved. Maybe because we see the scene where we are or the scene where we live in Santa Barbara and we understand the heartache and we see the people who are struggling and we desperately want to know that love wins. And we cringe whenever we think of things like hell and wrath and judgment. Because who wants people to be judged? None of us. And so perhaps we leave that part of the Bible out and we just say, I worship a God of mercy and love. I don't know about that other judgment stuff, but I prefer to just leave it to the side. Listen, you don't want to do that. And nobody in this circle, nobody in this church, if you examine your heart, truly believes that there is not a God of wrath. Think of any travesty or tragedy that you've ever uncovered or experienced yourself. Injustices that have been done against you? Sexual assaults that you have seen, perhaps experienced. Murders, violence, abuse, shame, humiliation in our lives, in our city, in our community, in our world. Have we not had enough? On one side, we have a bleeding heart that wants to know that God is just going to love, 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 love. But don't we somewhere deep down in the farthest caverns of our being want to know that evil is going to be dealt with and not just slide off and continue to be exacerbated evil just running rampant don't we want to know that there is something outside of our government personalities outside of our families outside of our cities outside of our world that is going to do something about the evil and injustices of our day I've got good news for you. It's going to happen. And that's why it's not just a gospel of justice, but Jesus came a first time to notify everybody that this is going to happen. There is going to be justice. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, and I'll read 9 too, says exactly this. When Jesus came the first time, He came on a donkey to spread peace, but the second time, it's going to be different. Verse 4, it says, On that day, speaking of a day to come, later, On that day, His feet, who's His feet speaking about? Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the coming One of God, on this day his feet shall stand on the mount of olives that lies before jerusalem on the east we're looking at the east gate right now and on the mount of olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward you hear what i'm saying and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to us all. And over and over, this entire scene is the natural order is turned into chaos as the man of God, the son of the living God, puts his foot down in an entirely different fashion. It splits the natural order, and nobody will mistake his coming this time. He is not coming as a suffering servant the second time. He is coming as Lord and King. And every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And those of us who already knew this will gladly bow our knees in worship and praise. Hallelujah. Amen. Hosanna, the King of kings, come now. Blessed be the name of the Lord God forever. But listen. While there's differing opinions on the details of how this is going to happen in the timeline, Forget all of that stuff for a moment and let's get one thing that we all know is clear. He's coming back. Jesus, our Lord, is coming back. And He's coming back here. He's coming back to rule and to reign. To put to right all of the things that were wrong. And to fulfill the promise that every other earthly king and priest and prophet and individual up until this point has failed to do. Create a people of God in the place of God under the rule of God, that thing that we all call God's kingdom, and He will answer His own prayer. May God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But listen, that's to come later. You know where we are now? You know the age that we are now? We are in the age of grace and mercy. Where Jesus doesn't come with a sword, the sword that we're thinking of here, He comes with a word of peace and reconciliation. And He says, everybody, whoever can hear my voice, fall on your knees and repent and be reconciled to God in Jesus' name. I want to end as we go into a time of worship, both here on the Mount of Olives and there in the city of Santa Barbara with this one word out of verse 10. And the word is, they were stirred. Are you stirred today? Are you stirred this morning? Be steward, because you have a great King who's coming for you. Heavenly Father, we just want to humble ourselves in the sight of our Lord God and say the same thing, Hosanna in the highest. Come and save now. We say that not as a desperate plea or a prayer, but as an act of praise. You are coming And I pray that in this time before us, we would lay down our own spiritual palm fronds, coronating You in our own hearts, unrolling the red carpets of our souls before You, to say, Lord, that You are not just our Savior, the One who forgives us and redeems us, but You are also our King. And may our knees bow before You, not just our physical knees, but the rebellious knees of our hearts that keep things in our lives from You. May everything that gives us breath, be laid at the foot of the cross, and may we all say as one body, rule and reign over us now. We don't want to wait until the second time you come. Rule over us today and cause our hearts to burst forth with praise and worship that we have not been left alone in darkness, but there is a light dawning. And may you be honored in our hearts for all of eternity.